Well, let me say, as a school district, we're not afraid of school choice. In fact, we applaud that, we encourage it. We believe that families in our community appreciate choice and we know that they have many options. And I think that's healthy for a community like ours. We're a very high performing school district. In fact, the latest rankings that came out uh, this fall show that Eanes ISD is the number one ranked pre-K through 12 public school district in the United States. And so that's prestigious company. And as a result, uh, because of the, the caliber and the quality of programs that we offer, we think that there's as much choice within our school district and within Eanes ISD as there is other options that families may consider. So choice does not bother us as an organization. Uh, the competition doesn't scare us. We think it's healthy. It helps us be better. And we know that families are gonna continue to choose Eanes ISD because we are a high-performing school district. So choice for us is not the issue. Welcome to the Eanes Parents United podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Silva. Join me for meaningful conversations and timely information about Ian's school district, its past, present, and where we all hope, for the good of our children, it's heading. Hello, everybody. Uh, this is your host, Aaron Silva of the Ian's Parents Unite podcast. So you thought I wasn't going to come back. I was going to go somewhere, huh? Not so lucky. Here we are, season three of the podcast. Your faithful host talking about everything EANS, everything about parents, students, the administration, and all the great things we've got going on here in Westlake. Kicking off this uh, first episode, we're going to hear from one of our favorite superintendents, Dr. Jeff Arnett. Him and I are going to tussle and arm wrestle over a list of very important things. First, we're going to talk about some of the legislative actions that have happened in the state house over the over the the year and what's currently going on as we're making this recording. We're going to get into discussing the um, the fate of Valley View School, the Spanish immersion program. We're going to get an update on where we are on the whole library books controversy, and then I've got. Various other questions that we get to, I think you're going to find uh, quite uh, titillating, including uh, starting early discussions about the next bond and some of the other initiatives that the school district is working on. And then following uh, Jeff, we have uh, two special guests that have never appeared on the podcast before. We have a celebrity parent. Some of you uh, may know Brian Talley. He'll be here with us. And uh, he brought along with him a really fascinating, intelligent, and one of the most uh, versed people on Texas legislation that I've I've met uh, in the 10 years I've been here. Her name's Mary Elizabeth Castle. She's with the Texas Values Group. And we are going to talk about, again, everything legislative right up to the minute. Um, and I think you'll find that very interesting and informing. So thanks to all of you for joining on this third season. I'm so excited to get started. I hope you enjoy the show. Come in. Oh, it's Dr. Jeff Arnett making a podcast house call. Dr. Jeff Arnett, thank you for joining me again on the podcast. It's good to be back. So nice to have you. Um, you're still not the guest with the most appearances. There's still one <laughs> ahead of you. You know who that is. That's probably my colleague. It's, uh, it's Jeremy. Yeah. yeah, Jeremy Trimble. So, <laughs> all right. Maybe we can do another session tomorrow, then you'll be tied. <laughs> all right. So let's hit on legislative priorities. So we're in this really unprecedented thing going on in the state. I was reading that... Uh, this is the first time that a governor has ever forced legislature to come back for a fourth special session. And the two primary things that uh, Governor Abbott is getting, wanting people to focus on, wanting legislators to focus on, is school choice and the border. And we won't talk about the border. That's another podcast. Mm -hmm. Earlier in 23, you and I met, and um, I asked you about legislative priorities, and you gave me this one sheet that any parent can download. I think they can get it on, mm -hmm. the, on the school website, probably not... Uh, buried too deep, but there's just a handful of priorities that the school board of trustees adopted, um, along with many other schools, uh, school districts in Texas. And it's called the uh, 2023 Legislative Priorities of the Texas Association of School Boards. Mm -hmm. 
in the Texas Schools Coalition. Sure. So the topics on the priority list, uh, one is school finance, one is recruitment and retention of teachers. Um, there's a mental health and safety matter, testing, standardized testing, uh, facilities and bonds, and accountability for public dollars, which everyone, all of us taxpayers love to hear about. Mm -hmm. So let's go through these and, you know, let's just say, did they succeed or did they not succeed? Did they even get picked up or not picked up? Mm -hmm. So on school finance here, uh, we were looking for an improved formula for recaptures, effectively mm -hmm. what the what the demand was. How did that go? Well, we're always trying to move the needle on mm -hmm. recapture. Uh, it's been around for more than 30 years, was originally introduced to the school funding formula as a temporary equation, but now it's become permanent. The state is virtually dependent on that money from local school districts. Every session, uh, it becomes a topic. And I think there's always a little bit of movement on the fringes of it, mm -hmm. but not significantly. We're still sending roughly two-thirds of every dollar from local property tax revenues to the state through yeah. recapture. Uh, so it, it didn't see a significant benefit for okay. us, um, but hopefully someday. Okay. My kids continue to ask for the same thing over and over again. After about 15 times, they usually, <laughs> they usually get it from their mother. <laughs> not from me. I'm, hard, I'm hardcore. Yeah. All right. Teacher recruitment and retention. So this was, we wanted additional uh, funding for, you know, more educators, um, more benefits and, uh, and retirement. Mm -hmm. How's that going? How'd that go in the previous sessions? Well, I know that's not being taken up now. The, we make any progress? You know, in the regular session, not much progress at all. Uh, in the special session, however, what's being discussed, uh, and some people think what is being bartered in exchange for educational savings accounts or vouchers, would be an increase for teachers in their compensation. And the state would provide an additional dollar amount for teachers uh, for the first year. In subsequent years, the districts would have to absorb that increase and find a way to fund. And then we would have to figure out a way to absorb that additional cost in years going forward. That's but like a six to 8% increase on the average salary. It is. That's yeah. significant. And, and our educators do deserve to be better compensated. Of course. There's no question about yeah. that. So, uh, so that's where the movement is on that. I mm -hmm. think in terms of employee health and retirement benefits through yeah. the teacher retirement system, uh, the voters actually did just pass a proposition that would approve that for our retired teachers and give them an increase in their pension. So uh, because there was no cost of living adjustment previously, and now they'll benefit from a little bit more money. Another uh, priority was student and staff mental health and safety. We wanted capacity. I, I never that word is thrown around a lot in in the halls of education. I don't know what capacity means <laughs> as a business guy. I don't know what mm -hmm. that means. But we wanted capacity and access to funding. Uh, how did that go? Frankly, not much movement at all okay. there. Uh, yeah. That's an acknowledgement that we need to do more to support student and staff mental health. And a lot of the issues that individuals deal with in their personal lives often manifest themselves in our schools. And they bring mm -hmm. to schools some... Uh, some challenges that they may be experiencing in the family. And so that affects the school environment, and we want to be supportive of those individuals. I think that's what capacity refers gotcha. to. To do that, to have the necessary personnel and or programs, whatever those may be, uh, would require additional resources. And right now we haven't seen an increase in that to allow us to increase uh, the type of programs and supports that we might so provide. So this is – I know when I had uh, Molly May on last season – we talked about mental health, and I think it was between counselors and professional psychosocial folks. We had 33 or something spread out through all the campuses. Mm -hmm. And I recall asking her, uh, she she was advocating for more um, mental health c capacity. And uh, and I asked, well, do you measure what the cases are? Do you did, Is there a measurement somewhere that parents can see, taxpayers can see on what are the different types of cases you're handling? How many of these are, um, you know, students are coming to you with a need and you're referring them out? How many of them are issues that are managed within the counseling capacity that you have? What And she said there really wasn't a tracking mechanism on what type of cases they were handling, the volume of cases they mm -hmm. were handling, but she was certain that they needed more mental health. You know, so it just it's weird to hear 
that you don't know what how they're classified, but you want more of it. I think that's evidence of all of this being relatively new to school districts, especially coming mm. out of the pandemic, uh, because there's, there's a lot, a lot more uh, depression, so and, much more and, fallout and mm. issues of related to mental health, anxiety, depression. I mean, just today, uh, at the time of this recording, I'm coming from Westlake High School, where they're beginning a basketball tournament, and the theme is "Be Beautiful." Uh, in other words. It's more than just basketball, but there are 32 teams from across the state of Texas who have come here to play, all girls teams, yeah. and they're focused on what are the mental health needs of women athletes while at the same time competing against each other in a basketball tournament. So it's a recognition that oh, gotcha. all of our students have mental health needs, whether they're athletes or not. Mm -hmm. And I think in, in every realm of public education, we're trying to be more cognizant of what we now know is a, a greater need to address mental yeah. health issues. But you're still not providing marital counseling. I can't get there. <laughs> I asked that last year. She said no. Oh, we don't have any nope. students who are married. Yeah, uh, uh, that you know of. <laughs> no, I wasn't going to make a, a joke about another state where that might be going on, but I'm not going to do that. Now, as the, as the leader of this administration, don't you see what types of mental health cases we're dealing with? Aren't they categorized or charted out? I mean, they are. I mean, so yeah. they, they are measured somewhere. And so internally we know, and we understand what those emerging needs are, mm -hmm. but there's no, at, at this time, no really good public reporting of that, that the state has asked us to track. Mm -hmm. However, I think that's changing. Yeah. Uh, as again, you know, we're only, what, two or three years removed from the pandemic when there's so much greater awareness mm. of the variety of issues and needs that students and mm. staff have. Mm. So the reporting is following. And I think there's, uh, you know, this is probably a tangent, yeah. but, um, okay. I, you know, schools are not businesses per se, and not everything that matters can be measured. You probably have heard that before as that well. Previous, so, yeah. And I think there's an intuition uh, among educators, especially those that w have worked with children and adolescents for a long time, that something is shifting here and mm -hmm. something is changing in our society that we need to be prepared to respond to in our schools and our classrooms. Yeah. And that's the second time you've told me that in uh, in two and a half years. Not everything <laughs> meaningful needs to be measured. We'll always be different on that one. Um, but okay. school facilities and bonds. So this is about allowing school districts to raise money in a slightly different way through bonds than what's traditionally been done. How did this one go in the legislature this year? Well, I, this year? I, I think what that refers to is more about how bonds are represented on the actual ballot when voters go to um, consider something. So this is our, our experience earlier this year. There was a parsing mm -hmm. of the language Yes, that this would be require a tax increase. That's right. Um, this is actually a very healthy conversation mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. I think school districts, as well as leg legislators, are learning from this about how do you represent a, a proposed bond issue, for example, that may not increase the tax rate, but does have, have implications in terms of the taxes that uh, a yeah. resident would pay. Yeah. So uh, I, I'll acknowledge that I think we, as well as the state, need to do a better job of communicating and explaining mm -hmm. that in the future. Mm -hmm. And conversations like this have mm -hmm. helped us understand that when a proposition is on the ballot, that the communication around that needs to be yeah. fully transparent. Well, this is actually where I think you are thinking like a business, because a business, how it markets something is not always exactly what they're selling you. Mm -hmm. And um, I was critical about the bond and the way it was marketed because it was marketed sounding like nothing was changing, which was true mm -hmm. because your taxes were going to stay the same. But what was underneath that message was if we didn't vote for the bond, your taxes would be going down. The rate would change. The rate would change down. Mm -hmm. It would it would be compressed. And as a result of you voting for this bond, it's going to go back up. So. That's like a very business way to approach, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to position something in the marketplace to sell something. So that is an example of something that can be measured actually being meaningful. Mm -hmm. And it worked. And it was sure. 134 million. Yeah, a little 130? more than 130 million. Yeah, gotcha. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, so nothing on that. Nothing moved on that. All right. Then public dollars around school choice. So this is very um, timely because one of the primary reasons the governor extended into the fourth session is because of this school choice. So let's let's talk about that initiative. How have we done on getting that 
through. Well, or what we wanted. We 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 don't want school choice is effectively what our position. Well, let me say, as a school district, we're not afraid of school choice. In fact, we applaud that. We encourage it. We believe that families in our community appreciate choice, and we know that they have many options. And I think that's healthy for a community like ours. Competition. Yeah, it is. And and we're a very high-performing school district. In fact, the latest rankings that came out uh, this fall show that Eanes ISD is the number one ranked pre-K through 12 public school district in the United States. Mm -hmm. And so that's prestigious company. And as a result, uh, because of the, the caliber and the quality of programs that we offer, we think that there's as much choice within our school district and within Eanes ISD as there is other options that families may consider. So choice does not bother doesn't, us yeah. as an organization. Uh, the competition doesn't yeah. scare us. We yeah. think it's healthy. It helps us be better. Mm-hmm. And we know that families are going to continue to choose Eanes ISD because mm-hmm. we are a high-performing school mm-hmm. district. So mm-hmm. choice for us is not the issue. What is most concerning to us about the whole school choice debate is not choice itself, but the funding that helps to resource vouchers okay. because the we believe that that would probably be drawn from the support that we get as a public school district. So what that do you would mean, what do you mean? code for what? What do you mean? We would get less money. We would get less money from recapture. Yeah. Well, we would get less money from the state. Uh, our recapture payment probably wouldn't change. Because that's statutory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there would be less money potentially coming oh. to us because okay. that money is instead being used to support educational savings accounts. Now, what's being discussed in the special session? Mm is more money being given to public schools in exchange for a concession or an allowance of vouchers in local communities. So, you know, that those are the types of, um, that's the bartering that's mm-hmm. occurring in the legislature right now. So we're paying close attention to that. The funding aspect of it is particularly concerning to us specifically. The choice aspect of it, while it's not a concern to Eanes ISD as much, it is a concern to public education in other parts gotcha. of the state. So you went, you were personally down at the state with the Don't Mess With Texas, so everyone got together against school choice. So you were not against standing there representing our school district against school choice because of our personal interests or our mm-hmm. specific interests. It was more that you worried about the rural communities potentially being hurt. Being supportive of other school districts, but more concerned and more focused on the funding aspect of what's being discussed. Is this a Sheffield concern? Because I know she spends a lot of time um, advocating for rural districts and kind of she has that as a side. I I wouldn't say a side hobby. Probably not the right way to describe it, but I know she's active. Is that why you were down there or she was down there? No, I can't speak to the the personal or the professional mm-hmm. endeavors of our trustees individually, mm-hmm. because in whatever that capacity is, they're not yeah. representing the board. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. All of our trustees as a body alongside me, when we uh, visit the Capitol are talking about these priorities gotcha. that they've all adopted and that they've all agreed to. Gotcha. There was one thing I missed, um, standardized testing. So yeah. we have in here that we wanted the state to stop ranking schools by this A to F system, not the not the students, but the schools. And we also wanted effectively to get away, get away from or do away with the star mm-hmm. thing. And that went, that didn't go anywhere. Well, not yet. I get a lot of comments and emails from parents and a lot of teachers that listen to the podcast, I'm very grateful of that. And I'd say top five issues I hear, one of them is teachers saying they hate that darn star test. And it's such, I've, I've had many dozens of teachers say this is, it's a waste of time. They hate the fact that they have to teach students how to take a test and it distracts them from their other curriculum. It takes away their time being creative and getting deep into subjects that they would, that they're specialized in talking about. And they have to shift into this gear every year. One of them said, I have to I have to go into this low gear for weeks on end to get ready for a test that doesn't affect me and how I'm paid. It doesn't affect how the school is is compensated for tuition or anything like that and or, or attendance. So I, I do hear that, you know, and I know as a parent, my wife and I don't particularly like it. We think it's a waste of time. And I know there's a lot of parents that feel the same way. You, you hear a lot of this. Sure. We think there are other ways to measure success. All right. Let's talk about other. All right. Since. 
I will give us a, a low C on priorities. <laughs> we did our best. <laughs> going away from the A to F. I'm sorry. I'm going to get a C. Uh, speaking we didn't of, get much time. of ratings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Speaking of ratings. <laughs> so we talked about legislative uh, um, priorities. Let's talk about Valley View. Mm-hmm. So Valley View is a middle school uh, or an elementary school, excuse me. And it's kind of a unique school. And not too long ago, y'all were going to close it. Or it was talked about publicly about closing it, or it was going to, it was, it was, its future was not certain. I, I think the latter is okay, more correct. Okay, future is not we, certain. We never intended to close Valley View as a campus. We feel like it has a use, and we wanted to have an open conversation with the Valley View community, both staff and parents. About it just wasn't going to be an elementary school. Well. It would still be there as a campus, but <laughs> are you are you parsing words? I mean. No, no. we we. You know, we did discuss options. Might there be another use for Valley View as a facility? And the issue is that it is currently half the size in its enrollment of all of our other elementary schools. So half the size. I mean, mm -hmm. you mean it's at 50 percent capacity or it's it's 50 percent lower than its peers? Both. Uh, Both. So, okay. So the so the capacity of each of our elementaries are similar. I thought Bridgepoint was Bridgepoint like, is larger. Okay. Yeah, Bridgepoint has a greater capacity, but most of our other elementary schools, including Bridgepoint, are in the five hundred and fifty to six hundred student range. Okay. Valley View this year is is sitting at two hundred and ninety students. So it's although it's, it has a similar capacity, right? Okay. It, it has the okay. capacity for okay. upwards of 600 students. And uh, this is the only campus that's not in the neighborhood was intended to be built. So give right. us a history lesson on why it's not sitting in Cornavaca. So Valley View uh, is not contiguous to the geographic attendance area that uh, its students come from. Hmm. It's the only one of our six elementary schools that is like that. The communities and the neighborhoods that uh, attend Valley View have to travel down Bee Cave Road yeah. to 360 and, you know, with the increasing traffic in Austin and in our school it, district. It, so it is pretty it is pretty much gerrymandered for Cornavaca. Yes. That area. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah. And that the the history of that goes back decades. Yeah, uh, what when, happened? Well, when Valley View was first opened, Valley View and Forest Trail, which are literally right next yeah. door to each other, yeah. one was a primary campus, meaning it was mostly grades K through two. Okay, and the other was grades three through five. Oh, so they drew from different areas, um, uh, and they represented different grade levels. Um, but over time, as the population grew. Uh, they both became traditional K through five elementary schools. Okay. So Valley View has been that for many years. Yeah. But other things have shifted. Uh, birth rates have declined. So we've seen a, a loss of enrollment over a period of time, especially in the early elementary grades. Mm-hmm. And that had an effect. I think the fact that uh, Valley View is not in close proximity to its primary attendance area You've got another school, Barton Creek, that is in closer proximity. So um, families given choice, again, in our district, exercised that and in some cases wanted to transfer from Valley View oh, to Barton Creek mm-hmm. okay, or mm-hmm. to another elementary school. Uh, the introduction of Spanish immersion seven years ago, uh, it's not offered at Valley View. Uh, but is offered at other campuses. So families chose to go to other schools. So I think you have a combination of variables that contributed over time to Valley View's declining enrollment. Uh, It has nothing to do with performance or reputation. All of our elementary schools are highly ranked. Yeah, just uh, we don't have as many cedar choppers and around anymore and having, (laughs) you know, five and ten kids as families. Well, demographics have (laughs) changed. Uh, Wasn't there a bond uh, option back in the day and that neighborhood decided not to do it or something. What was that, sure. what's that about? In 2014, there was an elementary school proposed for that area, for the Cuernavaca neighborhoods, that okay. would have put an elementary school there yeah. uh, within their boundaries. Um, it wasn't that it was not supported by the Cuernavaca community. It wasn't supported by the entire school district. Ah, So you have voters. Why do who, I vote for a school my kids are not going to go yeah, to? So. Uh, uh-huh. That was a decision made by the community at that time, and the school was not supported. So that's why Valley View has remained the elementary school. Gotcha. For, mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a new day now. It's a new day. And, and what, are we, what are we doing? So we listened to the community, okay. and we we had many heartfelt forums with the parents and with the staff, and we talked about all the different options. 
And ultimately, what we decided is we're going to keep Valley View a traditional K through five school for okay. the foreseeable future. Okay. We're going to add Spanish immersion there because we know that, that that's a program of interest to many families, and we hope that that will draw more families to Valley View. We're going to adjust our transfer practices for new out-of-district students. Okay. So Valley View becomes the first choice or the default campus. That's where they go. So they. So this potentially also solves the Spanish immersion because that was pretty hot. So you've we've decided Spanish immersion is not going to go away. Right. It's going to stay. Mm-hmm. And this is where it's going to be actually expanded in the Valley View or it will yes. be exclusively in Valley View? No, it'll be expanded at Valley View okay. or an expanded version nice. at Valley View, whereas on all of the other campuses... For a variety of reasons, which we've discussed at length over the last year, we are going to adjust the Spanish immersion program on the other four existing elementary campuses, mm-hmm. changing that model slightly. But we believe that by offering it at Valley View now provides additional access and choice for families yeah. if that's a program that they're interested in. Um, wasn't there a something about um, a problem with merit and the teachers that were doing the Spanish immersion getting paid more than other teachers, and there was a little bit of a kerfuffle going on about that? Well, what's happened in education, like many other industries, mm-hmm. is that if you have a certain specialization, yeah. uh, and in this case, if you have the certification to be a bilingual teacher, you can command more of course. in other school districts. Yeah. Uh, there are stipends attached to yeah. those additional qualifications. I mean, that's why we're getting educated. And the first, more education you get, the perception is you're going to get paid more when you get out of school. Yeah. Why shouldn't that be the same for Spanish teachers? So we're competing with those other districts that uh, are paying more for bilingual teachers. And if we need those teachers to provide a choice program, uh-huh. then we have to consider paying them a little bit more as well. So mm. there's the equity part of that conversation that we're very respectful of because it's different for our district. And so we're now becoming in that regard, like many other districts that have to compete for these, uh, these very specialized educators who are becoming more and more scarce. What's the equity portion mean? What do you mean by that? Well, equity meaning you could have a teacher next door who is a traditional, uh, predominantly English speaking teacher who is being paid a, a base yeah. salary, but next door you have a bilingual teacher who's teaching the same curriculum only in Spanish, but is getting an additional stipend because of his or her qualifications. So is so is getting the additional stipend equity? I don't understand. Yeah, it's that's that's it, merit. Well, you know, some people would perceive that to be an inequity because really? they're teaching the same curriculum. The but same, they're doing it in two languages. Yeah, I mean if, so. If you had this, if you had another teacher that also did it in two languages but stood on one foot all day, <laughs> you would pay that person more because that's another skill. Or if they did it while juggling, that is so odd. Why would that be a problem? That's the changing landscape of public education because that's not been the case for so long across the country in public schools. You that's know, interesting. Typically, you're compensated based upon your years of experience. Your tenure, yeah. Uh, but now what's happening in education as an industry is there are additional stipends and compensation for specialization. That's, so. uh, I think that's great. Well, I think that's healthy. I mean, if we want the best, if we want the best, because if we continue, if we want to continue to producing the best possible students we can, or, you know, the adults we can, educated adults, you have to have the best teachers. You can't get excellent on everyone's paid the same. Sure. You can't do it. Uh, Or exemplary. I mean, you can't get it. That's the conversation that we now have to have with teachers as professionals that the the vocation And that's a business concept. Sure. Yeah. And it's competition as well because we're competing with other districts that are paying educators more for certain specializations. That's good. We should respond to that. And we are. I'm I'm totally for that. Absolutely. Well, that's good. So this is a win-win. Valley View is sticking around. Yes. Spanish Mersion is sticking around. Right. Teachers, teachers are paid more for having more skills, maybe. <laughs> in certain cases. <laughs> in certain cases. Uh, and I think the best examples of that are uh, those who have bilingual qualifications yeah. or uh, special ed. Yeah. Uh, special ed is a whole other aspect okay. of public ed. All right. Let's hit a let's hit a couple old friends here. Let's talk about library books. Mm-hmm. So we had legislation this year. The Readers Act passed. Mm-hmm. But before the Readers Act passed, you implemented your own policy, administrative policy at the school about um, getting rid of these awful uh, materials in our libraries or categorizing them, making putting them out of reach or too high for kids to reach. How's that going? How has the, the, the law affected us and how has it affected what you did previously? Yeah, well, the, the law uh, that was signed 
uh, into law as a result of HB 900, uh, as you said, the Reader Act, mm-hmm. is now suspended based upon lawsuits that have been filed against the state. And so that law has actually not yet gone into effect, and we're waiting for the outcome of that. In the meantime, we have uh, your policy. Well, it's it, you know there's a distinction between policy and regulation. So yeah. the board sets policy, and we didn't adjust uh, or touch the board policy uh, because it's broad enough and it's still relevant and mm-hmm. it's still useful. What we did underneath that uh, is what we call an administrative regulation okay. that operates within the guise of the policy but allows us to have more administrative oversight uh, in terms of how uh, books are categorized in our library mm-hmm. and giving parents the right to either opt in or opt out of certain books depending upon the grade level and mm-hmm. whether those are young adult books or adult topics. That's the bifurcation. Yes. Young adult or adult. Mm-hmm. So what is what is the policy? What is the administrate? What is the word again? Uh, administrative regulation. Administrative regulation. So, yep. So a fancy it, term for new rules. Well, it okay. went into effect this year, and okay. uh, it's gone smoothly. Okay. We've not had any issues with it, um, and there are different aspects to it that allow, as I said, parents to either opt in or mm-hmm. out out of books depending mm-hmm. upon the grade level and the age of their child. Uh, books are categorized based upon young adult or uh, young adult content in the middle schools. And we did that categorization? Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our librarians like 65, are... 65,000 books in our catalog. That's well, been... but I, I think they know which books would almost immediately fall into one of those two categories, young adult at the middle school or adult at the high school. And so our librarians, as a committee working together, mm-hmm. uh, now within this administrative regulation, are applying those those new specifications. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that the regulation allows us to do, because we still are trying to work our way through a very lengthy list of book challenges that date back now almost two years, mm-hmm. and we're processing that and we're addressing those Is books. Is that being, that's at the same pace? At the same yeah. pace, and it's a slow process, admittedly. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, be- one of the complaints. I mean, yeah. we filed some, my kids will be out of school, at yeah. a high school, yeah. before they even come up. But what the administrative regulation allows us to do is to identify books that are especially concerning. Mm -hmm. Uh, They may violate the penal code, for example, or there's content that um, is unnecessarily vulgar or Mm -hmm. graphic. Books that meet that criteria could be elevated uh, to the top of the list more quickly to be addressed. Um, Who elevates them? So we look at that administratively. So you you guys are in a – you guys are – taking your new uh, rule, I'll just use the word rule because I can't get that word out (laughs) out of my mouth, sorry, and you're applying your rule against those books that are sitting there right now. You're actively doing that. Yeah, so so if a parent says to us, look, this book clearly violates the Texas Penal Code or this book is especially and unnecessarily graphic or vulgar for these reasons. Even though it's about Benjamin Franklin. Or it's about the Underground Railroad I mean, or whatever. It, it's just yeah. awful, there's, the content. There's obviously an application of yeah. common sense here. Yeah, and good. We could That's look good. At, we could look at that book and we could say, yes, that book merits being elevated. To and an we adult need, level. We need to look at it more quickly yeah. and make a determination. Yeah. And if we determine that, uh, yes, it does cross a, a threshold, yeah. then then we can address that book specifically. If we feel like the book maybe is not quite um, as um, as offensive as perhaps the parent thought, then it simply goes back into that book review gotcha. process and it follows the normal yeah. route. I think common sense is a very important term because a lot of this is just common sense. And I think some of the uh, rating of the books is, you know, people are being intellectually dishonest. I mean, you you read what's in these books and you've sat through countless board meetings and listened, I mean, you know what's bad, it's bad. Uh, you, you you put a thought in my head. So the librarians are rating these books. What if people believe the librarians that we have are part of the problem laying those books in there in the first place? And now you've got the fox watching the hen house. How do we know that they're making better choices when some people feel they were the ones that let them in or were advocating for them in the beginning? Yeah, I think in defense of our librarians, mm-hmm. um, these are qualified educators mm-hmm. and they have learned a lot in the in uh, in the course of this conversation yeah. as well, and there is 
much more administrative and in involvement and oversight, mm -hmm. working alongside of our librarians to look at books, especially graphic novels. Yeah. Um, you know, we know that that was an area of particular concern. Yeah, that was an easy one. It's addressed in the yeah. regulation. All right. Last question. We've started calculating for a new bond. We just got the $134 million. Is that true? We're already looking at another bond. And is there any other way for us to do business and to, and to keep the school going without bond after bond after bond? Yeah, I think for a school district like us, like Eanes ISD, the state funding formula essentially incentivizes or incentivizes districts to take on more debt uh, and to ask voters to approve bonds. The reason for that is because what we do on the maintenance and operations side of our levy mm -hmm. uh, and what we do on the interest and sinking side or the INS, INS side, yeah. uh, which is where bonds are paid from, yeah. the INS side is not subject to recapture, whereas right. the M&O side is. Yeah. So what monies we raise on the INS side of our rate through bonds doesn't go back to the state. We maintain that at the local mm -hmm. level. So there is this incentive for districts like us that are subject to heavy recapture payments to look at bonds as a way of funding our schools. Mm -hmm. Our newest school in Eanes ISD is 26 years old. And our staff are driving from and through communities that are fast growth. They're building new schools that are modern and bright and contemporary. And even facilities play a part in how we recruit and retain our staff because you, know, you think so? I I think so. I mean, this and this this young generation, this young they they don't they don't care about anything but money. <laughs> no, really. I mean, well, I mean, I, you know, again, we we're all hiring from the same pool of people. Yeah. Uh, these, you know, they can't put a pretty school in their bank account. Uh, sure, everyone wants to go to a nice place, but to work, and that would be. But at the end of the day, they want money. They this this generation wants pet insurance. They don't want, you know, but they want different things than any other generation has wanted before. Are you, are you certain? I mean, are you saying that we have to spend hundreds of millions of dollars improving our campus so we can recruit people and pay them the same amount? No, that's only one aspect of it. And I think the greater aspect of it is what um, the learning environment does for instruction and for students. And we know that by visiting many of these new schools around the state and around the country, mm -hmm. There's a significant difference in the atmosphere and the environment that's provided gotcha. by by new facilities yeah. uh, that are more innovative, more collaborative. And so we have to consider whether or not that's something we need in Eanes ISD. Mm -hmm. Do they like the nostalgia and the history and the charm and the ambiance of schools that are older? Or do we need to have some of these newer amenities, whether yeah. they be in instruction or in athletics or extracurriculars? Yeah. It seems... Um, it seems to me as a as a taxpayer i've always understood that a bond is primarily for capex projects you know it's mm -hmm. for big big stuff mm -hmm. and we've gone through this evolution over here where we've we've done some tricks i'll use that as a term we did the penny swap and then we did the penny swap and drop which are ways to use ins monies uh which aren't as restricted to you know shuffle them around kind of like a Shell game, it sounds like it's unethical. I don't want to make it sound like it's unethical. But we've, we've done that, and now we're to the point where we we have a new bond we just passed, which is specifically geared toward offsetting things that would have otherwise been construed as M&O. So we have more M&O dollars, and we're going to spend the difference. And it feels like we're in a corner now where the original purpose of raising a bond is no longer available to us. We must continue to use it for these other purposes to offset M&O, to yeah. you know, move it from INS over, and we don't have any more tricks. And, and, and so I see, if I'm, if I'm here another 10 years, I just, which, and values keep going up and up and up, if houses maybe, let's hope they do, but I'm gonna be paying more and more and more, and the bond is gonna be less and less purposeful for what a bond is originally intended to do. And that concerns me as a property owner here. Well, I'm I'm sorry, Aaron, that it it feels, feels that like way. these are tricks or a shell game. That's certainly not the intent. Mm -hmm. I think what it's a product of is the state funding formula forcing school districts to be more. Are other districts doing this? Oh, I mean, yeah. is, I mean, is Lake yeah. Travis doing the same thing where they're bringing bond money in to offset M and O, and they're 
calling it one thing, but really it's another? I think it depends on whether a school district is exposed to the level of recapture payments mm-hmm. that we, like we are. Because they have a little bit more benefit. Well, they're, there, they're a example. fast growth district, yeah. and so it's not affecting them to the yeah, drip. It's the us. same yeah. thing for drip, and right, yeah. right. So it's it's a product of the funding formula yeah. in state. Yeah, in just just the, the the property tax is just nuts. Mm-hmm. And and so now we have to figure out, okay, what does that mean? What are the implications for us as a school district? Because while we're respectful of any benefit to taxpayers, we have to be mindful of what that yeah. means to our bottom line as yeah. well. Well, this has been a great conversation, Jeff. Yeah, always a pleasure. Uh, awesome. Uh, thank you for coming in. Thank you for letting me ask you anything, <laughs> which you do. A lot of uh, I've I've run into listeners over the these last three seasons, and they say, "Oh, your your guests are too prepared," or whatever. I do give you the types of questions I'm interested in asking, but I ask whatever sure. I want, and yeah. you have always been so generous to say, "Ask me whatever you want," and you've never asked me to make a change to anything that's been said on the podcast. Which is you great. know, I I just want to say how much I appreciate the conversation and dialogue is really the the essence of our approach to communication or at least mine personally yeah and i value uh, exchanges like this mm-hmm. that are not scripted yeah uh, i didn't reject any of the questions that not you one. wanted to ask so i'm happy to talk about these i'll say again uh, we're a great school district for and, sure and Absolutely. to be highly ranked uh, that's a standard that we have to work very hard every day to achieve but we're not perfect mm-hmm. and we'll be the first to acknowledge that yeah. there are challenges and there are warts that yeah. we're trying to figure well, out. Well, I gave you a C be on the legislative thing, so you've got a long way to go. Maybe next time we'll talk, you all do right. better. I'm going to try to get to a B at least okay, uh, right. for the next podcast. All right, Jeff. So. Thank you again. All right, Aaron. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that uh, segment with Dr. Jeff Arnett. Now we're going to kind of turn the page and get a perspective from, rather than a local perspective here uh, from our superintendent, we're gonna get a perspective on legislative matters from uh, Mary Elizabeth Castle, accompanied by one of our parents, Brian Talley. And I think you're gonna be quite fascinated to hear from this uh, very, very astute and sophisticated um, lady. And of course, uh, Brian Talley as well. We're here with um, two very special guests uh, joining us to talk about uh, parental rights, legislative issues affecting parental rights, students, our educational system. Uh, we have Mr. Brian Talley. Brian, thanks for Hi. coming. Thanks for having me. And then we have uh, a new uh, guest to the show also, Mary Elizabeth Castle. She is the Director of Government Relations for an organization called Texas Values, a lobbyist organization. Why don't you tell us, uh, Mary Elizabeth, thanks for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for inviting me, Aaron. And um, why don't you tell us just a little bit for the listeners that don't know what Texas Values is, what you folks are up to. Yes, so Texas Values is a 501c3 law and policy organization that represents issues on religious liberty, pro-life, and marriage and family issues. And with that third prong, we do get involved in education issues to make sure we have parental rights and protecting our Texas kids. Before I spend some time with you, uh, Mary Elizabeth, I wanted to talk to Brian about what are the, you know, in your mind as a parent here in Eanes, what are the like top three things in your mind that you're watching the school work on or that you really want to see the school uh, work more on that would, um, you know, as a parent you think is going to be important? Besides a parking garage? Besides a parking garage, yeah. I'm definitely a traditional-minded person, focus on academics, focus on sports, um, competition, mm-hmm. uh, preparing kids to be uh, to take the next step in life beyond uh, high school to a higher level, uh, professional opportunity. What are the legislative issues that is that you are really focusing on uh, right now? So... I have focused on a couple of different areas as it relates to the experiences that we've had over the last few years in mm-hmm. Eanes, um, and that has uh, primarily been a focus on legislation around the books in the library, mm-hmm. essentially, and the sexually inappropriate books that, that are in the library, and uh, HB 900 uh, was passed by the governor this session. The Reader's Act. The Reader's Act. Um, that has some uh, challenges, some legal challenges that it's 
uh, up against right now, but that was my primary area of focus. Uh, also, SB 17 is focused on higher education, and that basically banned diversity, equity, and inclusion in higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very controversial issue. I spent a lot of time in the Capitol listening. You mean it banned, it banned the uh, people holding positions that were about uh, DEI, or was it curriculum, or both? I can't, I'm, not specific, I'm not familiar too much with the bill. My understanding is that it banned the program itself. The program. So those individuals that were working in that department have been or will be at the end of this year reassigned. Gotcha. Mary Elizabeth, your organization had something to do with the DEI legislation at the what he's talking about. What ultimately was passed and what, what's been the impact? Yeah, so SB 17 was passed um, in this past legislative session and signed into law by the governor. Um, and like Brian said, it does away with the DEI program. Um, however, in conversations after it being passed, um, just like with all legislation, we're starting to look at the effectiveness um, if it has actual enforcement. You know, is someone getting in trouble um, if they actually have this type of program? Um, and so there's some rumblings that I'm hearing at a popular university that they're taking some of these DEI programs and just calling them something else. Um, so you may have seen in the news that a few universities were discussing SB 17 and how it'll affect them. Um, but we might see that these DEI programs might just be under a different name. Gotcha. And why why is it important to your organization that uh, that bill passed? What what is what harm is it doing? at the collegiate level to have a DEI program? I don't quite, what's the big deal? Yeah, I mean, the name itself sounds very innocuous. You know, you definitely want to make sure that um, everyone has an equal opportunity. Um, But these programs aren't really about that. Um, A lot of these programs are pushing what we have discovered to be critical race theory or teaching there's an oppressor and oppressed. So basically, uh, making groups feel bad for who they are um, mm-hmm. and making other groups feel like they should be owed something uh, because of either past history or just because of innate con- uh, attributes. And so a lot of these programs, what they're doing, they're putting in different type of curriculum or different kind of standards where merit is not even you know, considered mm-hmm. the number one thing, which is what college should be based on. Um, and so they're doing more harm than good. And they're really just, like you said, even in the private sector, they re- recognize that they're kind of a waste of funding and yeah. kind of just fluff. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's very important for our organization to make sure we're upholding those, you know, Texas values, those American values, and that, you know, our kids, you know, our young adults are going to universities and they're coming out appreciating our country, appreciating our economy and how everything is based in this country, you know, for you to live the American dream. And not think the opposite, yeah. um, which is just destructive um, yeah. to our country. I get a lot of um, one, one of the one of the benefits uh, and the surprises about doing this podcast, which I never have done anything like this before in my life, but I've had so much fun doing it for these last three seasons. Is I get a lot of notes from uh, parents and teachers. You know, in the top five uh, things I get from teachers. Um, I was just with Mr. Arnett, Dr. Arnett, uh, before you folks came in, and, I, and one of them is about how they hate the STAR test. Teachers, they say it's a waste of time. But the other one is um, about DEI. And uh, one particular note was said that uh, it was from a teacher that had left the district, and it was she, and she said, uh, you know, if I have to go to one more meeting where um, the principal or other uh, people on the teachers committee are saying, let's look at things through a DEI lens or diverse, a, lens, a diversity lens. She says, I'm going to, I can't take it. Like I couldn't take it anymore. It was just too much. And um, I had a correspondence with her and I said, you know, Eans doesn't have a DEI curriculum. Um, they really don't. And so I'm not sure why this could be dominating. She said, well, if you think, if you were to add up, I thought this is interesting. She said, if you were to add up all the thousands of hours, uh, you know, across all of their teachers where they spend time talking about these things, that's millions and millions of dollars. It may not be a curriculum, but it's a focus and it's, it could be a distraction. And, um, you know, my challenge has been around DEI. I don't like the E in DEI. I think it should be, you know, I like merit. Like you just said, merit is the 
the most important thing. That's what makes this whole country run. I'm still interested in understanding if there's a single measurement that anyone can show me as a parent that this helped anyone get into college or get into a job, unless they had a DEI position, now they're laid off. But who's it helping exactly? Other than, it, to me, it just seems like a simple program of being kind to people. Just be nice. Just be respectful. Just be have decorum and be civil. That's really all it is at the end of the day. I don't know why it's everything and nothing at the same time. It's always been confusing to me. You're right. It is actually a lot of fluff. And you mentioned the private sector. There was actually an article that came out recently that said, 80% of DEI positions in the private sector were actually held by whites. Um, by whites? Yes. Yes. So <laughs> virtue signaling. Yeah. So there, it's, yeah. there's a lot of, you know, virtue signaling yeah. um, in it to show that, uh, you know, really no one is being lifted up necessarily, but they were fed a lot of things that can be poisoning uh, to making people feel super conscious of what they say at work. So you may be forced to use a pronoun or you may be forced to avoid saying things because it might be misinterpreted in a way that could paint you as maybe racist when in fact what you said was innocuous and it definitely you know puts a discomfort you know in the workplace that they showed mm -hmm. for the private sector but also when it comes to the education realm uh, like you said puts a discomfort among students and at the end of the day no student is really helped by this idea that someone's an oppressor or someone's an oppressed or to tell even, you know, someone like myself that, hey, you're at a disadvantage. You need this extra yeah. help. Listeners from our can't office. tell, but right. you are black. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I can only imagine if I were told like, well, you actually need a special program um, to get into this college instead of someone, you know, seeing my talents and seeing my grades. And so um, where do you think it's going to go at the K through 12 uh, level? Do you think as a result of it sort of, uh, you know, maybe seeing its death knell or being uh, knocked back at the college level that the K through 12 is not going to align with that uh, so much anymore? So in 2021, we were able to pass a law that um, essentially banned critical race theory um, in the social studies standards. And mm -hmm. they have aligned the social studies standards with that law um, to go into effect. But you know, like you said, it's the DEI program is not just about the curriculum or what's being taught in the classroom. Um, so if there are these type of programs or trainings, you know, for teachers in K through 12 classes, hopefully we see that there's less of an appetite for this. Like mm -hmm. I said, in the media, you don't really hear that much talk about it because of what's been revealed about these programs, you yeah. know, being fluff. Um, hopefully we could see them die down. But at the same time, I think you know, parents still need to be vigilant to know what's going on, to what the teachers are being trained, um, you know, what's being said in the classroom. And there might be a need for more legislation in the future. Yeah. Um, circling back to library books that you you brought up as a focus, also a focus of mine. We've talked a lot about it on the podcast. So um, the Reader's Act did go into effect and then it got enjo uh, enjoined and then that was released and now it's enjoined again. Where is it now exactly? What? Why is it enjoined? What's going on? Yeah, so uh, whenever a law is enjoined or stopped from going into effect, usually it's because they find some sort of constitutional challenge. Yeah. So in the case of HB 900, some people who filed a lawsuit said it violated First Amendment rights, specifically for these vendors who would have to rate the library books themselves. It would um, put like a burden on them to rate them? Yeah, they felt mm. like it would put a burden on them to rate them. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Extra work. Yeah. No one likes that. Yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And so where is it? So that's where it's at right now. And, it, and it's going to the Fifth Circuit. Yes. Yeah. So there has been appeal to the Fifth Circuit. Um, and that hearing will actually be on November 28th. Okay. Um, the Fifth Circuit usually gives favorable rulings um, to, our, you know, these type of issues. Um, so we hope that it could be overturned and go into effect. Yeah. I understand, Mary Elizabeth, that you had a lot to do with the Title IX, the, the men and women's sport or the effect on Title IX. Title IX was a very, very, was a huge piece of uh, legislation that happened back in the late 70s, I think, or something. 1972. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was yeah. just a few years old. Yeah. And it effectively said, look, if you're going to have a sport for boys, you need to have a sport for girls. And if you have the population to do it. And it's been amazing. Uh, for women. And 
It's just been incredible. We have so many wonderful professional sports as a result and so many just incredible American stars, female, uh, coming from this. And then all of a sudden we start allowing men to get into women's uh, sport. Bring us up to speed on this legislation in Texas about men and women's sport. Right. So we're in a great place in Texas because we have full protection um, from girls all the way in kindergarten, all the way up to college to make sure that men are they're not forced to compete against men um, in their sports. So we're very excited about that. Uh, Back in 2021, we passed a law to make sure that the UIL, the University Interscholastic League, which runs sports in the state of Texas, they had to adopt rules that made sure boys don't compete in girls' sports at the middle school and high school level in public schools. Um, But the battle was not done. You know, as soon as we passed that law, you come up to uh, basically... 2021, 2022, when Will Thomas, you know, a native of Westlake, um, starts making the news as Leah Thomas. So that was the swimmer heard around the world, because even though this had been going on for quite some time where you had men competing in women's sports, uh, you had a famous lawsuit up in Connecticut where he wasn't the first. No, he was not the first. Um, So we started seeing this happening, I would say. Maybe as early as um, 2017 um, or 2018, where you start Mm. to see it pop up across the country, these boys uh, claiming to be women and competing on women's sports and just dominating them. We even have a senator, state senator in Texas, who talks about how she couldn't play softball um, before Title IX was passed because there wasn't an opportunity at her school to have a, a women's equivalent to baseball. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this was very important for women to have this opportunity um, and we didn't want to see it waste away. And like I said, going back to when it became a lot more famous with Will Leah Thomas and, of course, Riley Gaines, who's yeah. just been a star on this about, yeah. issue. Um, she basically had a trophy taken out of her hands by Will Thomas um, whenever she tied with him yeah. in a swimming race. So a lot more attention has gathered around the issue And that really helped propel forward because it was a little tough trying to get that college level protection. You know, we were very happy getting that first bill around, but the NCAA was coming out again, you know, pressure from these DEI type, Mm -hmm. you know, institutions too, um, to adopt rules that would say um, that they had to basically honor transgender athletes. Yeah. Um, and so it took a lot of movement and pressure from a lot of female athletes speaking out for us to finally pass a bill in Texas yeah. to protect at the college level. So they, they have a law that boys can't play against girls on the field. But can they be in the locker room? So that is the other piece of the puzzle that we definitely need to address. So, so it's not in this law. So it's not specifically in this law, the Mm -hmm. locker room issue. Mm -hmm. And that is something that still needs to be addressed by our legislature. And, you know, hopefully some people are listening because that has been a hard fought battle. We had back in 2017. This was actually um, the session before I started working at Texas Values, uh, what they called misnamed the bathroom bill, but it was actually the Privacy Act. And that was to make sure that um, men could not go into women's locker rooms, bathrooms, showers, whatever. Unfortunately, um, that law did not pass. Um, oh, my God. So I'd love to know what the status is in, in Eanes, because a couple of years ago when I asked the principal of the high school, they allowed men and the they? girls' bathrooms. Yes. I don't know. They said that it was federally mandated. Is that true? like that. So there's a lot of confusion that's yeah, going on right now. Yeah, clear it up for uh, the two parents here with girls. Yeah, exactly. Please. So the Biden administration for the past, I would say, year and a half has been on this mission to rewrite Title IX, basically to redefine sex to mean sexual orientation and gender identity. So not, it wouldn't, uh, not just male and yeah. female. Yeah. Um, so sex wouldn't just be male and female well, no longer in Title IX. It would include all of the genders, which I think there are more than 50 Um, And so there's been a lot of confusion because they had a deadline actually in October. So we were celebrating as an organization that they failed to meet this deadline because. Mm -hmm. To redefine it. Yeah, to redefine it. Um, But at the same time, a lot of school districts can take advantage of the fact that something's being proposed Mm -hmm. um, when it's not really in place. And so you have a lot of school districts saying, well, we have to do this. 
because we were told or the federal law um, when actually that's not the case. Um, And then you also have the Texas Association of School Boards. They kind of write some policies themselves and you know, try to convince schools that they have to allow these special rights to. So there, to answer Brian's question, there isn't a law or a something specifically saying, yeah, boys can go, go into girls' bathrooms, but there isn't one that doesn't say it either. So it, right. so so it, no. so it lives in this ambiguity. And while it's vague, people are going to use that opaqueness as a way to define it for themselves. Right. We oh really my. need to protect oh all women God. in all spaces. Like, why are we wasting time doing this? Why are we even talking about this? Okay, let's go on to something that we can get our head around <laughs> as two dads. School choice. This is one of the reasons we did the fourth, uh, Governor Abbott did the fourth session and also border security. What's going on with this in the, the Texas State House? Yeah, so where we are at this exact moment, there's a hearing going on. Um, in the Texas House of Representatives, they have a select committee on educational opportunity and enrichment, and they're hearing a bill, HB1, filed by Chairman Brad Buckley, um, which should be an answer to the governor's uh, call to address the issue of allowing school choice, universal school choice in the mm-hmm. state of Texas. Mm-hmm. But they, they've they porked it up, though, because it, it was passing the Senate, uh, but it wasn't passing the House. What are the uh, hood ornaments or the Christmas ornaments? Are they hanging off of it right now? Right. So there are quite a few concessions. and Oh, you know, concessions. Yeah. You Sorry. can call them concessions <laughs> or bargaining chips. Bargaining chips. chips. Yeah, okay, go ahead. <laughs> but it has been porked up quite a bit. I mean, you went from, I forget how long SB1 was, but SB1 in the previous session um, was pretty much a straight education savings account bill. Mm. Uh, This bill that they're hearing today uh, is 180 pages long. Oh, here we go. Basically has, you got to pass it before you read it. Exactly. Uh Exactly. Now I know there's an argument against school choice. Uh, There's many, but one of the big ones is that it's going to really hurt rural areas. And uh, because rural areas don't have options and, it could decimate, uh, you know, that little town, that one stoplight town, which in Texas, there are many of them, that's going to decimate that that school. And I hear that and I think, well, that is the point, right? To, you know, if, if you got uh, um, 500 or 1,000 parents that are now walking around with 10,000 bucks in their hand, someone entrepreneurial is going to start up a school and take them in. I mean... What what do you know about this argument? Have there been studies on whether this is true, that the rural communities will be decimated? We can't be the first state to do this. Right. So the research that uh, has been presented so far has said, you know, rural communities in other states uh, haven't seen a large mass exodus, you know, all at once from the public school whenever they start yeah. the school choice program. So, yes, there will be competition. And yes, a lot of parents will want this. But It doesn't completely shut down a public school. Yeah, it just doesn't make sense. A little footnote in an earlier session this year was Senate Bill 763, which permitted uh, school districts to hire faith-based counselors. And I thought this was interesting. I thought it was curious how uh, that bill kind of went through. And I was thinking of all the counselors that schools are um, hiring these days to deal with uh, mental health problems and depressions and all the new things that kids are experiencing and some of the older things. Um, Have you seen school districts bringing in faith-based counselors? I think that would be like a diverse thing to do, to bring in someone of faith to counsel kids that might have that leaning in their family. Have you seen any of this going on in Texas? So um, unfortunately, you know, we've seen a few school districts that voted against the policy. So the law that passed allowed school districts to vote for it, vote for a policy that would allow for it. And so we did see Dallas, Frisco and McKinney ISD vote no. Um, Mm -hmm. I think even San Marcos, which is not too far from us, voted no as well. Um, Mineola ISD voted for the policy to have chaplains on uh, campus. Um, you know, like you said, I think it's a great opportunity if a child wanted to hear from someone based on their faith, um, they're dealing with an issue and they just, you know, that's where they are in their life and they want to meet with someone um, who can give a faith perspective on counseling. You know, I think that's great to have that option. Um, I think a lot of it in the media has been maligned. Are you aware of our our trustees uh, voting for something like this? No, but I would add that 
one of the main issues that I've had with the district and the DEI program is that it's intrinsically political mm-hmm. and one-sided politically. And they say these words of inclusion and belonging, and yet they specifically exclude yeah. specific, uh, you know, people or ideas or politics. And so I think that these are opportunities to say, you know what, uh, we really are committed to uh inclusion. We really are committed to diversity. Mm-hmm. And we recognize that there are a lot of people in the community that are people of faith and would feel much more comfortable to go to a counselor. So that's not a top priority yeah. of mine personally, yeah. um, but it would, I think, be um, a step in the right direction. Yeah. And there's such a wide variety of people in the district. And I'm always excited to meet people on both sides of the political aisle and spend yeah. time with them. And I have a whole list of grievances against, you know, social grievances Mm -hmm. that I might have to say, you know, here's areas that we can improve as a community to uh, truly be more inclusive of each other and more caring and loving and, and, you know, spend more time together and get to know each other and and build each other up. And and really that's what is reflected uh, through our kids, right? Our kids go to school, they come back and we get to hear the word on the ground of of not not only their behavior, but the behavior of other kids and how kids treat each other. I and think that's it, also, also, um, often a reflection of the yeah. parents. There's a lot of good and bad, but I, you know, we're we're where we're at. Yeah. And so I'm looking forward. I've learned so much over the last couple of years. I've met so many people, um, have gotten to know so many people, uh, come to respect uh, different aspects of different yeah. individuals and personalities. Again, on both sides of the political aisle, um, it's a fascinating place to live. It really ISD, is. It really uh, is. Austin, Texas. I mean, we have uh, people that are on vast different uh, sides of, of perspectives on a variety of things, not mm-hmm. only politics, but business and other areas. So I think we're really fortunate to live in this district. Yeah, no question I think about we're it. fortunate to um, have our kids go into these schools and, and the opportunity to learn from other parents who came from different parts of the country with different experiences. There's a lot of smart people here. You know, I would just encourage the parents that are out there um, to, you know, really recommit to building relationships within the community Great. to people on both sides of, of whatever issues that yeah. you have and, and let's lift each other up. Yeah. Well, that's what we're trying to do here at the podcast. Great. Long format conversations, all sides of the subject. It's been one, it's been a, a wonderful journey. So much fun. Uh, Mary Elizabeth, Brian Talley, thank you for coming in. Okay, right. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us on the Eans Parents United podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Eans Kids First, ensuring that Eans prioritizes our children's well-being, honors parental rights, and unites our incredible community. To learn more about our mission or to donate to our cause, please visit us at eanskids.com. That's E-A-N-E-S kids.com. E-A-N-E-S kids.com.